0: I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know the peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks, They're wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. Your mom was a code breaker Mm -hmm. in World War II? So it is said. And like what? So she was, this was some top secret level stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So she was recruited apparently because she was good at puzzles and math and science. She was very, something my parents would do to socialize was to write limericks. (laughs) Sit around writing limericks the way you do.
0: This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Today on the show, I sit down with the one and only Bill Nye. Bill's a goofball nerd to the core, just like his limerick-loving parents before him. And like them, he has an intense passion for science. When he came out of college, he wanted to be an astronaut. NASA rejected him four times. He found his way to stand-up comedy, using science in his act. He did a bit about what happens when you eat a marshmallow that's been dunked in liquid nitrogen. He went on to host Bill Nye the Science Guy on PBS in the 90s. Bill Nye, the guy. Then the Netflix show Bill Nye Saves the World. In 2019, he launched the podcast Science Rules, and now he hosts the show The End is Nye about epic global disasters on Peacock. When Bill first came into the studio... I was curious to see how his sciencey analytical approach to the world translates to food and eating. I read that he's a big peanut butter fan, so that's where we began.
1: I enjoy the peanut butter and jelly, but I really was raised on peanut butter and honey. Okay. So there's not going to have the fruit going on, but I will choke down peanut butter and jelly. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but peanut butter on an apple, that's, that's what I'm talking about.
0: Crunchy or smooth peanut butter?
1: Uh, so I'm crunchy. But I will choke down the smooth. Right. I'm not. I'm not like. If you want smooth, knock your smooth self out.
0: <laughs> when you build a peanut butter and honey sandwich, tell me about the layering. Tell me about well, the structure. The, the, the
1: uh, we start, Ideally, you start with toast. That's really takes it up a notch for me. Why? For, for the mouthfeel, the crisp.
0: Oh, so you're you're a big crunch guy. Oh. You want toast? You want the crunch of the apple? The crunch of the peanut butter?
1: <laughs> the triple threat. <laughs> <laughs> <And> so. <laughs> Put the peanut butter first, honey on top, the bread on top of that. That's not, that's not controversial. Peanut
0: butter and jelly is one of my all-time favorites. I, just, I, I, I like to layer it, though, because layering into peanut butter and jelly is complicated. What I like to do is to do a thin layer of jelly on the top and bottom. Interesting, and then peanut butter in the middle. That gets a little jelly on top to oh, okay. the roof of your mouth, plus jelly on the bottom okay. closer to your tongue, accentuate right. sweetness. <clears throat>
1: but mechanically, okay, please. How am I spreading peanut butter on jelly? Is it only creamy peanut butter? It's, do you warm it up? How do you? That, get-
0: that's a challenge. That's fair. I mean, it's a thin layer of jelly, so most of it will go into the crevices of the bread, and it will kind mm. of like adhere to the bread. Uh-huh. It, you know, you're going to get a little bit of mixing of the layers. A little
1: bit. Yeah. <laughs> so you- what happens to the knife?
0: Well, that's what your tongue is for.
1: No, no. So here's what I mean. Something that I find unesthetic is probably not dangerous. Okay. But I'm not a fan of opening the peanut butter and finding that somebody has left traces of his or her jelly from previous sandwich there. Right. Not being, not having, uh, not acknowledging that the surface of the peanut butter is a a sterile (laughs) field. Not to be, so, you know, this is the whole thing. I was raised—my my grandmother was French, so, you know, you're a product of the stuff. So you decant everything. You, you take it out of the jar, put it on its own plate. No milk carton on the table. No um, packaging on the table. Right, everything in a serving dish. A serving dish, right.
0: Well, I, I would take the knife, spread the jelly on both sides, lick the knife clean, then you go to peanut butter. So
1: your saliva is showing up in my peanut butter. Perhaps it's a family thing, right. in your case. Right. It's, yeah. it's a Pashman family deal. Yeah, exactly. I, when I am over there, I am going to be wary. I am going to be wary. I am
0: surprised that you would be a germaphobe, Bill. I feel like a, not, a no. man of science like you would no, be. I did my just best, get in there.
1: I did my best to introduce this as a cultural thing that is respect for others. Right. Okay, so. Why do you decant? Why do you put stuff in little dishes to show the other people that you're concerned the food is valuable? We're concerned about this. We treat the food with respect. Why do we have table manners, everybody? I'm talking to my 12-, 13-, 14-year-old colleagues.
0: So we have a reason to yell One at our other, kids?
1: Uh, that could be. But the other thing is out of respect for the other people at the table. You keep your elbows contained. You use utensils so you're when you shake hands, you're not having— Peanut butter interactions hand wise. And similarly, you don't put a freaking knife that you lick <laughs> into the peanut butter jar. As the expression would go, are you high? No. It's <laughs> simply not done. But the, the Pashmans have to be wary, people. Yeah. If you're invited to dinner at the Pashmans, you may be dealing with some pre licked peanut butter serving tools
0: i make no promises what about the five second rule what's your take on that
1: well the five second rule is very reasonable here's what happens when stuff's on the floor trouble starts it's not so much about germs just people step on the oreo people step on the dollop of peanut butter and then it goes all over the house that's the real issue so why is it bad luck to walk under a ladder Because you get paint dripped on you. Somebody's (laughs) up there working. Right. Or the thing pops loose and lands on your head. Why is it bad luck to leave a hat on the bed? Because you're going to sit on it. Oh. Okay, (laughs) so why is it bad luck to go 30 seconds with an Oreo on the floor? Because somebody's going to step on it.
0: But you think, in terms of, like, germ, that's the concern a lot of people have. It falls on the floor, it's going to get dirty, That it's not clean to eat.
1: Well, there's got to be something to that uh, in certain situations. But in most, I think... U.S. households, you can literally lick the floor and live through it. Look at me. I'm fine. <laughs> can you explain cotton candy to me? I guess. You get the cotton really hot and it turns—you can draw it it's, into a wine it, It's a sugar? Filament. Is it just sugar? Is it heated in a certain a way? Sugar often with coloring, yeah. I think it's amazing. Co- it is cool and so good for you. <laughs> it's just—it's sugar with some— experimented with food coloring that can tolerate the heat. It's amazing. I mean, it's just, when you're a kid, what is more intriguing than cotton candy? Right. And now are you, <clears throat> when you consume your cotton candy, do you go at it with your mouth or do you pick it off? I pick with it you? off with my hands. And why do you do that? Because I don't like it getting all over my face. All over the face. You're very reasonable. The yeah. pizza, the pizza lips. Yeah, you don't want that. Yeah. But then your fingers have to be clean enough going in when you're okay with it. But you're a guy that puts his saliva-full peanut butter knife back in the jar. This germaphobic concern is not yours. (laughs) Clearly,
0: everything Bill comes across is an opportunity to nerd out, to learn something about science. But it's not all just a joke. Bill is the CEO of the Planetary Society. It's a nonprofit founded by Carl Sagan and others to promote space education and exploration. For years, he's been an outspoken global warming activist. Back in 2019, he appeared on John Oliver's show Last Week Tonight with a blowtorch and a globe to offer a lesson on the issue.
1: Here, I, I've got an experiment for you safety glasses on. By the end of this century, if emissions keep rising, the average temperature on Earth could go up another four to eight degrees. What I'm saying is the planet's on fire. There are a lot of things we could do to put it out. Are any of them free? No, of course not. Nothing's free, you idiots. Grow the up. You're not children anymore. I didn't mind explaining photosynthesis to you when you were 12, but you're adults now, and this is an actual crisis. Got it? Safety glasses off, motherfuckers.
0: So Bill's still using humor to teach. And he's still learning. A few years back, he made news when he reversed his position on GMOs, genetically modified crops. Now he's
1: in favor of them. I asked him what changed his mind. I wasn't really opposed scientifically to modifying genes. In other words, modifying genes didn't strike me as inherently bad for the plant, for the crop. My concern was for the ecosystem because of the unknowns, the unintended effects. And people have adopted, in U.S. English, have adopted a rugby term, the knock-on effects. Uh, Like you couldn't tell what you are going to do to the ecosystem when you modified a corn plant or a cotton plant or whatever it was. But that would be 25, even 30 years ago. Now, I am satisfied now that modern researchers can modify crops, and really know what genes are going to be produced, what chromosomes are going to do, what, and what interaction is going to happen. Then furthermore, this happens in nature all the time. and the the medium, the carrier, the thing that induces these genetic genetic changes is our viruses. So the classic example, everybody, if you've ever seen a tree with a um, a big growth on the side, mushroom shaped uh, growth, that's where a virus has gotten into the tree and not just infected it, but changed the tree's genes. It happens in nature all the time. So I am no longer opposed to GMOs. Furthermore, I think the future of humankind is going to require them. Farming is not natural. If you stop farming, it's, the land goes back to whatever the heck it was or is going to be. And so you just have to keep that in mind and just... I mean, right. like if, it,
0: it's inherently a, a a man-made process. Yeah,
1: or human-made. So human-made. Bu- bus- agricultural business people brought on their own problems, but I think there's nothing inherently wrong with genetically modified organisms. Not, not inherently.
0: Bill, we got some calls lined up from oh, cool. listeners A lot of food science questions people want to ask Will you stick around and answer some, some FSQs. questions? Some yes Because, yeah. yes,
1: you know, I'm an expert on all things food science <laughs> right, There you go well, right. I'll take a shot all all right, I'll great. do my best mm-hmm.
0: Also coming up, I'll ask Bill a question about bananas That I have asked two other science people before They haven't been able to give me an answer Will Bill stick around?
2: Cook up some advertisements.
0: In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook Ice Cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool... Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff too. But I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best Buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyard has so many different kinds of wine, whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. They got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Papin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I feeling great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash Sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash Sporkful. Welcome back to The Sporkful, I'm Dan Pashman. On last week's show, I talked with Sam Sanders, Saeed Jones, and Zach Stafford, hosts of the podcast Vibe Check. These guys are close friends, and the show's basically like their group chat come to life. And they all have strong opinions about food, like when Zach explained his thoughts about grocery shopping with your partner. Grocery shopping can be some of the most intimate things you do with someone else, like to walk through a store and see what they pull for their week, to eat when they're happy, to eat when they're sad. Tell me something you learned about Craig that you didn't know about him by going grocery shopping with. Canned chicken. That's what I learned about Craig. I did not know. Yes, canned chicken. Saeed looks so (laughs) confused. It's wet. It can stay around forever and ever and ever. Yeah, canned chicken was a big aha when we moved in together. Wow. And where are you at with the canned chicken in your relationship today? (laughs) We don't really cook with canned chicken anymore. (laughs) (laughs) We also help some of our listeners with their food-related relationship issues. That episode's up now. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. Okay, back to the show. I'm joined again by Bill Nye, and we also have your co-host on the podcast Science Rules, the science writer, Corey Powell. Hi, Corey. Hey, great to be here. So uh, we're going to do what you guys do on Science Rules, which is we're going to take some calls from Excellent. people about science, food science in, in this case, and we're going to we're gonna try to answer some questions. Can we Let's, do that? Well, yes. Why mm. not? Okay. We can dream. All right. First off, I want to ask you guys a food science question. This has been plaguing me, and I want to I want Plaguing? See you, yes, plaguing me. So I make a dish for my kids sometimes that I call banana pudding. All I do is take a banana, mash it up with a fork, keep mashing and mashing until it becomes the consistency of pudding, and I add a little splash of cinnamon. I don't add sugar. But I have found that the mashing of the banana somehow, even if it was a not especially ripe, not especially sweet banana to begin with, the mashing turns it sweeter. And by the time I've made my banana pudding, it tastes like candy.
1: What's well, happening? I gotta say one word to you.
2: Amylase. Amylase. Yeah, that's that's really the word to say is am, amylase. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so
1: there's a there's an enzyme in bananas that when you fork it up, you this enzyme busts out of the cells and it affects our taste buds and it thinks a banana tastes sweeter. People also report, I'm sure of it, after you freeze a banana, you'll the spicules the ice crystals in the banana will pierce the cells and also release this amylase so it is not your imagination it is a true fact not a false fact so I, I,
0: I think there's probably a great business here because there, everyone wants to like things to taste sweet without adding sugar
2: well so here's the cool thing about amylase so amylase is, is an enzyme that's involved in the ripening of fruit it breaks down starches into sugars so what you're doing is you're essentially by mashing the banana it's like you're making it ripen all at once you're destroying all those cell walls, so you're releasing all the starch, and you're mixing it all together with the amylase, so you're turning the starch into sugar, so it's like you're doing like a week worth of ripening you know in a in a minute when you're mashing it
1: so uh th- I was thinking this is an old thing, starch and sugar. just expressed briefly, starch is a polysaccharide, sugar is a disaccharide, so you're taking the poly, the mini. And smashing it down into the two, and so that's uh, that's why we love them. And so on the Science Guy show, talking again briefly about me, <laughs> uh, the joke was a banana milkshake. Does is anything as good as a banana milkshake? And the the charm of a banana milkshake is it doesn't need any sugar. You you blend that banana, you chop up that banana, and it releases the uh, amylase, and the the poly becomes the dye. The starch becomes the sugar, and it's a joy. It's a joy. Oh, my God. That is if you have the mutant gene that enables you to enjoy dairy products, Yes, which my European ancestors had, and here I am.
0: At this point, I do want to make a little confession to our listeners. I actually told your producer in advance, Bill, that I was going to ask this question because I have asked two other food science people this exact question, and they've had nothing for me. So I wanted to give you, like, some advance notice, and maybe you could do a little— research ahead of time. And what I love, Bill, is that despite the fact that you are a very busy guy, you conducted an experiment with bananas in your house last night.
1: Yes. I took a banana and cut it in thirds. Now, I'm the first to admit I cut it what I would call latitudinally uh, across the banana. Maybe looking back, I should have gone—I could have gone longitudinally the long way.
0: But it's hard to cut a banana in thirds the long way.
1: Well, it could be done. Right, right. Uh, So— I did uh, raw banana or banana off off the shelf, frozen banana, and mashed with a fork, per your anecdote. Right. And you have a
0: photo of this. I
1: have a photo of the mashed banana, the frozen banana, the -the off-the-shelf banana. Per Dan's uh, story, I did it with a fork. I did the mashing of the banana with a fork. And uh, it's quite noticeable, you guys. You don't have to take my word for it. And I did... I imagine in a food processor, or blender, the effect would be stronger.
0: I just love that you're the kind of guy who will actually be like, I'm going to run an experiment well, in my on. free time.
1: This is what makes me crazy. <laughs> so you think the world, you think the earth is flat. Well, should Go to the edge and take a picture. There's no edge, no picture, is there? You know, what about that? Is it true? Hey, Bill, is it true that hot water freezes faster than cold water? Well, why don't you try it? And Most people have to access me. to hot and cold water. Yeah. In <laughs> Most our people...
2: society, they do. Most people right. have access to bananas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so uh, amylase, the enzyme in bananas that breaks down and, and makes a mashed banana sweet,
0: uh, is also an enzyme that's in your saliva that helps break down your food. Well, you know what's especially interesting about this? Because I have taken flack on this show for my opinion that like, when, I, when my kids were younger, you know, they're like one, two years old, you let them just sort of like nibble on a graham cracker. And it keeps them busy for a while. It tastes good. Um, And, you know, you always end up when you're a parent, like, scrounging your kids' crummy leftovers. And I felt that the graham crackers that had been gummed by my little kids tasted better Than graham crackers straight out of the package. And people said, that's gross. How can you eat graham crackers that have been in your kid's mouth? I thought it's partly because I think they're a little bit softer. They're not so dry and brittle, which I like a little chewiness. But now you're telling me that probably also I liked it that way because they're sweeter. Your your kids
2: are little enzyme preparation machines.
0: I'm They're, just going to have them pre chew all my food Yeah, now. you should. The,
1: M- the ep 2000, <laughs> enzyme prep 2000. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's it's like, you know, the mama bird uh, regurgitating yes. the food for the baby like bird, only
1: it's going the other
2: way. Your your babies were regurgitating en- en- on behalf en- of the exactly. preparing the food yes.
1: for you. It's the circle it's of the the circle life. Of team, <laughs> life. Team, it's the cycle of life. There's no eye in team.
0: All right, should we go to the phones and take food science questions from listeners? Please. We
2: have Nicole Uh, who has a question I'm quite excited to hear about, talking about salt and boiling water. I wonder what that's about. Hi. Um, So this question came up last year when I was teaching marine science, and we were talking about cold, uh, dense, salty seawater. And somehow it led to a teacher who taught near me, who liked to be the smartest person in the room, saying that the reason why people salt their pasta water is to lower the boiling point so that it will boil faster. And I have learned since then that a lot of people think this. So I don't know where that came from. Do you think that salting the water has any effect on flavor or temperature
1: so, Nicole, this, wrong. <laughs> this is, as yeah. Corey pointed out, this is a fabulous question, I think, near and dear to all <laughs> pasta enjoyers. Yes. Dan, among <laughs> which you are whom, if I may construct uh, it for uh, Big enjoyer, effect.
0: big enjoyer, yes. And so
1: why do you feel—because i got strong opinions here on physics—but why do you feel we salt the pasta water?
0: Well, in terms of the science, I'll defer to you, Bill. But I do want to say that salt in water for flavor— Absolutely makes a difference, and when you're making pasta, you absolutely should salt your water liberally with more salt than you think you need, and it will make your pasta taste much better.
1: Just because it's got that (laughs) salt-mouth-stimulating jolt of sodium ions. Exactly. (laughs) So, Corey, you're a science reporter with years of... Of uh, behind the keyboard, uh, a, ve- <laughs> a, a, a veteran one might say. So, uh, do you uh, do you have a strong opinion about the salt and the boiling? Because I do uh, strong opinion about salt and boiling.
2: My uh, my look. Uh, so, I mean, salt does you know it. it lowers the specific heat of the water which so would, the which water would water can hold less heat which would make it boil a little more easily but it also you know salt in ge- in general adding extra things to the water raises the boiling point but the thing is both of those effects are very very small uh, to, to to appreciably yeah. change the boiling point you'd have to add probably, uh, like 100 200 grams of salt that's a it's a lot of to salt to a liter
1: to a, to, to 1 liter ten, of water 10 20% of the mass of the thing would be salt.
2: Right. You'd have to be really dumping okay. salt in there to have a big impact on... The I
1: got to jump oil in oil. here
0: because at here's this point, Bill and Corey started getting into some really hardcore science and I kind of got lost. So I looked into it some more, talked with them some more, and here's the deal. You're not likely to add enough salt to make your water boil faster. The ocean is 3% salt. You would need your water to be 10 or 20%. But many of us have had that experience where the water in the pot is close to boiling, and you pour in some salt, and suddenly, boom, it's boiling, right? Wrong. That's actually sort of an illusion. So what's really happening? Well, that turns out to be kind of complicated. It could be that the salt crystals are creating what are called nucleation sites, which essentially make the water fizz briefly, like champagne. Or it could be that the temperature contrast between the salt and the water causes it to fizz up. Either way, if you create that fizz effect just as the water is about to boil, and then soon after it starts boiling, you could be tricked into thinking you made it boil faster. But the truth is, it would have boiled at about that same exact moment even without the salt. There is a second bottom line, which Corey summed up well. The most important thing I take
2: away here is that salt in your pasta water makes the pasta taste better.
1: Nicole, thank you so much. You, that's a great you question. inspirational. Thank you. Okay. Uh, right. Thank I, you. What else we got on the big thank board, you. Corey? Uh, that's a question from Julie. And here, uh, Julie, uh,
2: go, you're on the air. Go ahead and ask your question.
1: Well, hello. My question is,
2: why do we like more food the older we get? What's happening in our mouths? Julie, Julie, thank you so much. I actually have to ask one question. Do you have children? Uh, is that part of why you asked this question?
0: Well, I have, I'm a school food service director, so I have, like, 2,500 kids. And um, there's, I notice there's a big shift between, like, elementary-age kids and middle-school-age kids with what they want to eat. Um, you know, the middle-school-age kids are all after the
2: um, spicy, the buffalo, the sriracha. And personally, yeah, I do have kids myself. But, um, uh, yeah, there seems to be a giant shift when in the teenage years or early teens where they – Will be more adventurous. Wow.
1: That's a great question. Dan, you're the man for this. You have kids, and you're not a kid as much anymore as you once were.
0: I mean, I I think the short answer is exposure. I mean, and and there's a lot of research done on food aversions. Why do people dislike certain foods? How can you learn to like a food that you don't like? And the short answer that sensory scientists will tell you is uh, exposure. You know, start off by exposing yourself in small amounts. We actually did an episode of The Sporkful about picky eaters called In Defense of Picky Eaters. We got into a lot of the science of picky eating. One of the things I learned is that it can take someone 30 or 40 tastes of a food before they acquire a liking for it. And so I think mostly what's happening in this case is just that like the first 30 times you tried it, you didn't really like it. But then finally, it's in small doses, it ends up in a few things that you eat by accident or at a friend's house. And then finally... You know, your eyes are open to it. I've acquired a taste for a lot of foods in my 30s and 40s that I never liked when I was a kid. Yeah. A, a great
2: question. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, I love this next question. As someone who is uh, fascinated by the future, I'm very fascinated by this by this next caller uh, who wants to know about lab-grown meat. We have Dub. Uh, Dub, are you there? I am here. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate this.
1: Thanks for taking the time. Dub, a- lab-grown meat. Thank you. Yeah.
2: Yes, sir. Uh, so yeah, my question, I really, how far away are we from affordable, clean,
0: lab-produced meat?
2: Um I, I have a diet of a high, high protein, high fat seems to work really well for me. And it really works best when filled with animal protein, but just kind of like, you know, the battle of the ethics uh, behind it or the guilt behind, uh, where the meat comes from. So this uh, intrigues me quite a bit.
1: So what researchers have done is get the stem cells of meat and grow them in culture. And uh, they produced a hamburger that right now would cost hundreds of dollars per burger or a fraction of $200 per burger. That's right. right. Basically,
2: you're growing the, like the, the muscle of the cow without the rest of the cow. Right. Just, no
1: baseball glove leather, no intestines, no uh, cat gut for guitar strings, none and no, of this. And no. <laughs> so I have, on the electric TV machine, I have tasted lab-grown meat. And it tastes exactly like meat. Furthermore, uh, recently I was uh, with my friends at the Union of Concerned Scientists, and <laughs> we visited this lab where <clears throat> they have found a uh, protein and a molecule they refer to as the heme uh, having to do with hemoglobin and iron, and so they found they can insert this uh, genetically, the genetic modification of crops, and get it to t- get a, for example, a soy product to taste like meat. So th- when I think about the cost of this hamburger right now, getting back to this one idea, thank you for calling Dub, and you get back to the cost of the hamburger. It's hundreds of dollars right now, but if you were making them on McDonald's scales, you got to think it would be cheaper. Far cheaper. I mean, pick a number, a hundredth of the cost of raising a whole cow on a giant farm. So I can imagine as research continues, Dub, that this will become affordable in one form or another. And by that, I mean either in a derived vegetable form or in a derived animal form. So Dub, stay tuned. I am confident, I predict, here early in the 21st century that uh, laboratory-style or industrial-style satisfactory meat products will be available at reasonable cost.
2: And, Dub, am I correct that that's something that you're waiting for? You sound like you're, uh, you're eager for the lab-grown burger rather than creeped out by it. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. No, no creepiness factor, that at all.
0: Uh, <laughs> very- <laughs> Bill Nye Corey S. Powell it's been so exciting having you both here thank you so much
2: thank you thank you
0: next week on the show we look into the mysterious world of food texture you know I'm a big texture eater I'm always thinking about texture but it's something that some folks don't give a whole lot of thought to still it's a huge part of why you love and hate certain foods so what makes a food creamy or crunchy or even squishy and slimy we'll nerd out on all of it next week Meanwhile, check out last week's show with the host of the podcast Vibe Check. They share some pretty controversial food opinions and help a few listeners with food-related relationship disputes. That episode is up now. This episode was originally produced by Ann Sani, and Putabuele, and me. Producer Andres O'Hara put together this update, and it was mixed by Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Nora, Richie, and Colin Anderson. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And this is Larkin from Ithaca, New York, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better.